Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys episode 294. That daredevil, Steve Brody. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. It's just me this week. Tom is away on a well-deserved holiday break. I'm around town working on a different project at the moment. And actually, there's one part of this thing that I'm working on that's such a summertime tale that I want to share it with you this week. And that is the story of Steve Brody, a mostly unknown figure today who would have been the hero of almost every boy and girl in the late 19th century. A Gilded Age superhero who seemed to defy the laws of gravity in 1886 when he leapt from what was then the most famous bridge in America and then walked or rather swam away without a scratch. And by the way, if ever in the history of the Bowery Boys podcast, we had an episode that required the disclaimer, do not try this at home. It's this one. Of course, the bridge I'm talking about is the Brooklyn Bridge, the colossal architectural marvel, which had just opened three years earlier in 1883. Now today there are millions of Steve Brodies. His reasons for risking his life in this way were simple, fame and fortune, rewards that he did receive, more or less. In a way, he perfected the art of social media showmanship during the Gilded Age, 125 years before social media even existed, a sort of Instagram celebrity before the era of Kodak film. Of course, it was the newspapers that made Steve Brody, and with their attention, he became the self-proclaimed King of the Bowery. He was so famous in his day that his name even entered the English language with the phrase, pulling a Brody. Now, according to my friend and podcaster Grant Barrett from the show Away With Words, from a show that he recorded a few years ago. 1886, New York City, a fellow by the name of Steve Brody claims to everyone that he has leapt from the Brooklyn Bridge. He was a sensation in the newspapers. It was much discussed, did he or didn't he? I mean, this was the big event of the age. And so to do uh-huh. a Brody came to mean to jump or to fall. And eventually came to mean to do any kind of stunt, including something simple like a donut became a Brody. In an alternate path, Brody continued to have the fall sense, and it showed up in Hollywood to refer to a flop. Because you would imagine Steve Brody jumping into the East River from the Brooklyn Bridge did some kind of belly flop. So if a movie tanked in Hollywood, it was called a Brody, or it did a Brody, meaning it flopped or fell. And yet it is the absence of any photographic proof of Brody's accomplishment that has left a lingering, unanswered question. On the afternoon of July 23rd, 1886, did Steve Brody really jump off the Brooklyn Bridge into the East River? Was Steve Brody a dynamo of the Gilded Age, or was he just a con artist whose international fame rested on a daredevil stunt that he simply invented? Brooklyn Bridge. 
Bridge, 133 feet high, 1,500 feet long, contains hundreds of miles of cable. From it, Steve Brody made his sensational leap into the East River. <laughs> what in tarnation did he do that for? I'm glad you asked that, friend. It happened in 1886. In the 1949 Warner Brothers cartoon, Bowery Bugs, Bugs Bunny attempts to explain the reasoning behind Steve Brody's legendary jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, it involves Brody needing a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot. So guess who has a rabbit's foot? He goes out to visit Bugs Bunny, who lives in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Did you know that? I guess to take one of his feet. Well, we'll get to the punchline of this story a little bit later. But as for the real story of Steve Brody, that begins with the Bowery Boys, by which I mean the 19th century street gang, of whom we are named, who menaced the streets of Lower Manhattan around the area of Five Points. While the gang was initially quite nativist and anti-Irish, by the 1850s, many members were Irish themselves, and it was in one skirmish with a rival gang that one Barry Boy gang member was murdered. His name was Richard Brody. A few weeks later, on Christmas Day, his wife gave birth to a son in a building called Oddfellows Hall, and a building that still stands at Grand and Center Street. His mother worked as a maid here, worked for the Independent Order of Oddfellows. Although we can say that Steve himself was born into a little bit of a fraternal order of his own, for he had several older brothers, which made their living quarters quite tight. So as a result, in these early years, the family moved from tenement to tenement throughout the area of today's Little Italy. Now, like most working-class children of this period, Steve worked from almost the moment he could stand first assisting his mother as a laundress, then later at his brother's cigar stand at a military camp on Hearts Island. But at an age when many children today would enter kindergarten, Steve Brody took to the streets selling newspapers. While many newsies were orphans, homeless, or living on the street, a greater number actually did live at home, becoming breadwinners for their family. Steve Brody did not go to school. Becoming a newsboy was his education, and he began hitting the beat near Publishers Row, across the street from City Hall, around the age six or seven, picking up heavy stacks of New York Suns, fighting for a street corner, and fending off attacks from other competitive, bullying newsboys. But none were worse than Brody's own brothers, who constantly beat upon their younger brother, and often stealing his paltry income. Now, when Steve was just nine years old, he moved out of his home and into special housing for boys on the street. First at a boy's home on Park Place, and then when he was around 13 years old, relocating to the Newsboys Lodging House on Duane Street. For just 18 cents a night, a child with a job could secure himself lodging, meals, and a small locker for his possessions. And this was how young Steve Brody lived for the next several years. But living in these kinds of communities, you were often living with your direct competition, and that could be tough. You had to sell newspapers every day through snow or sweltering heat, or else you risked becoming homeless. You fought for street corners, and you fought to protect your property. Men robbed the boys, and older boys robbed the younger boys. By the time he turned 18... Steve Brody, now slightly under five feet tall, had developed scrappy street toughs, a slim athletic build, and an entrepreneurial spirit. He made so much money in the 1870s, for a newsie, that is, that he actually opened a savings account to deposit his daily quarters. He even had his own little gang, and on their better days, they would spend the afternoon leaping off the East River docks in the area of today's South Street Seaport. Soon, other newsboys from around the neighborhood would gather to watch Brody illicitly climb up into the ships themselves to cannonball into the dark water below. From Brody's 1897 biography, quote, 
His cheerfulness and quickness won the friendship of everyone with whom he came into contact. He became acquainted with people of many classes, brokers, capitalists, lawyers, newspaper men, athletes, sporting men, actors, cranks, crooks, bums, and all the various kinds of humanity that united to make New York an inexhaustible field for the student of mankind. In 1879, at age 18, Steve Brody would become a minor celebrity and earn himself the nickname the King of the Newsboys, thanks to a very strange athletic craze. Pedestrianism, or competitive walking, was all the rage in the 1870s, with competitors walking literally hundreds of miles over several days within circular sports arenas. Professional pedestrians could make thousands of dollars well before the era of comfortable walking shoes by entering these distance walking contests, as spectators frequently wagered on their favorite contestants. No surprise, interest in pedestrianism corresponds with the rise of another major American craze, velocipede racing or early bicycle racing. But the big difference between the two was that working class athletes who couldn't afford to buy a fancy European made velocipede could simply become a pedestrian star with just his two feet. From the New York Daily Herald, February 15, 1879, Pedestrianism has wrought its way into the favor of the upper circles of newsboydom, as was proven last evening by the commencement of the feat proposed by Master Stephen Brody of walking 90 miles in 24 hours. The track was laid down in the gymnasium of the newsboy's lodging house and duly measured. The first mile was done in 9 minutes, the next in 10 minutes, and 5 miles were finished in 52 minutes. At about 5 in the morning, he discarded his shoes and walked the next 13 hours in his stocking feet. He finished the 90-mile walk 40 minutes ahead of time. By the spring of 1879, Brody, the teenage pedestrian, had become a minor sports star. In April, Brody entered a six-day walk at Gilmore's Gardens, a performance venue near Madison Square Park that, just one month later, would take on the name of that park, Madison Square Garden. Now in that contest, Brody placed seventh, only seventh, walking only 310 miles in six days. But he had become an audience favorite. According to the New York Times, quote, so lavishly were baskets and bouquets of flowers showered upon him that not only was the front of his tent covered, but they were strung along the track in festoons of course, during the run, his fellow newsboys sold papers to the crowd on Brody's behalf, and then afterwards, Brody himself sold a huge autographed stack at inflated prices. Steve would then take to the road, participating and often placing in competitions in Philadelphia, Baltimore, San Francisco, and Boston, advertised at every venue as the New York Newsboy. He collected thousands of dollars in prizes along the way, as well as a surly reputation. In Philadelphia, Brody punched one competitor in the eye while on the track. And not only was Brody not disqualified, he actually won the race. And in San Francisco, he was arrested for vulgar language and then promptly skipped town before the trial. By the fall, he was back in New York, in time to get locked up in the tombs for throwing a can of mustard at a restaurant proprietor. Unfortunately for Steve Brody, pedestrianism was in its waning days of popularity. And now that he was back home, he was quickly making his way through all that prize money, in part to start a family. He married a girl named Bridget Breen. That's right, it's not a pun. Bridget Breen, the daughter of a bankrupt ex-Confederate steamship captain. They had the first of several children just two weeks before Steve's 20th birthday. Even as Steve continued 
entering walking contests. Brody also took up other jobs. He was briefly a streetcar conductor, and for a time, he even took up another foot-related profession, boot blacking, hiring newly arrived Italian immigrants to man a series of boot black stands throughout the city. But Steve Brody was still a Bowery boy at heart, and who knows what his wife thought of his nightly carousing with his rowdy brothers, not to mention his frequent trips to the racetrack to bet away his weekly earnings. And yet, he had a very different kind of reputation among his peers in the fourth and sixth wards. Steve Brody was a hero. On several occasions, starting in his late teens, Brody made the news saving lives. In 1882, a Park Row building called the Potter Building caught fire. According to the Brooklyn Times Union newspaper, Brody was the cause of saving several lives by climbing a telegraph pole and throwing a rope to people on the upper stories. For this, he was rewarded a gold medal. Brody was also a lifeguard for a time, and later reports would list the lives he would save from drowning. These rescues gave Steve Brody something he had not experienced since his glory days at Gilmore's Gardens. Fame, reward, and attention. For these brief moments, Brody was worshipped as a young man of astonishing athletic ability and was sometimes financially compensated for these abilities. Yet these moments were fleeting. New York City of the 1880s was a fast-paced, exhausting metropolis of two million people. Steve Brody was just one of thousands of working-class men in the largest city in the United States. So how could he possibly manage, at this point, to stand out? In fact, the answer had been staring at him the entire time from the East River. When the Brooklyn Bridge officially opened on May 24, 1883, no lofty description was spared by writers to describe it. Its opening to public use marks an enormous stride in the march of American progress, wrote the Brooklyn Daily Eagle on opening day, quote, and unfolds a prospect for the future dazzling in its brilliant possibilities. The opening ceremony shut down the city and thousands including, we have to assume, Steve Brody, gathered in the streets along the waterfront to help celebrate. Brody had been a seasoned nine-year-old newsie when construction first began on the bridge in the winter of 1870. As he and his friends swam around the East River piers, he saw the crews risking their lives in sinking the bridge caissons and building the grand anchorages, which would soon tower over even the ship's bows that he fancied jumping from on hot summer days. At his bootblack stands, he met the financiers and Tammany Hall politicians who helped fund the bridge. During the bridge's construction, Steve Brody had grown from a newsboy to a married man. They were, in a very strange way, related. The Brooklyn Bridge filled people with awe, but also with fear and uncertainty. Nobody had ever seen such a thing before in their lives. Could it possibly endure the daily traffic of not one, but two major cities? In an effort to ensure the public of its safety, the city brought in P.T. Barnum to march a parade of 21 elephants across the span. I mean, who had ever seen so many elephants? But still people weren't too sure. Just six days after the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, rumors of a bridge collapse caused a panic stampede. Twelve people were killed that day, crushed by an anxious mob. The bridge was ominous. Then there were the stories of the construction itself. Its designer, John Roebling, was killed in a surveying accident before a single brick was laid, and his son, Washington Roebling, who then took over as chief engineer, almost died of decompression sickness. 
It weakened him to such a degree that his wife Emily Roebling had to take on many of the responsibilities. Over two dozen workers were killed on the bridge in frequently grim construction accidents. For all of these reasons and more, the bridge developed a reputation as something to be conquered by men. Joining a rarefied group of 19th century marvels, including the English Channel and Niagara Falls. And these marvels inspired daredevils. In the 1820s, the daredevil Sam Patch achieved fame by jumping from several waterfalls, including the Passaic Falls in Patterson, New Jersey. In 1859, two years before Brody's birth, the French acrobat Charles Blondin walked across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And then there was the case of Robert Emmett Odlum. Odlum was a Washington, D.C. swimming instructor who taught the children of many prominent individuals how to swim, including the son and daughters of President Rutherford B. Hayes. He dazzled steamship passengers on the Potomac with various feats of swimming and diving, and even worked up to more dramatic feats, like diving 90 feet from the bridge over Occoquan Falls in Northern Virginia. Odlum became nationally known for these feats. People called him Professor Odlum, although he held no actual degree. And in 1885, Odlum announced that he would leap from the Brooklyn Bridge. He moved to New York, and being attracted to the same types of delights along the Bowery, he naturally met and befriended Steve Brody. Now, Odlum's friends, among them gamblers hoping to make a quick buck, of course, made such an arrogant show of Odlum's planned dive off the Brooklyn Bridge that by the morning of May 19th, the city was well aware of it, and police officers doubled up on the bridge to prevent such a dangerous stunt. But Odlum managed to escape notice, creeping across the bridge, and at last making the jump in the afternoon during one of the busiest hours of the day. From a newspaper the following day, Robert E. Odlum made a foolhardy leap from the Brooklyn Bridge, a distance of 135 feet. He struck the water on his side, and on rising to the surface, blood issued from his mouth. It ruptured his lungs, liver, and spleen, and crushed five ribs to a jelly. He opened his eyes a few moments when being taken into the boat, made a few remarks, and died. Odlum was unmarried, 33 years of age, a man of good habits, but his ambition for fame got away from him. Far from being discouraged from trying something so clearly dangerous, Steve Brody took inspiration from Robert Odlum's fatal attempt at glory. Later, the New York Times would describe him as, quote, a half-witted fellow, a man who will undertake anything if provoked or offered money. Still, why did Steve Brody decide to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge in light of these odds? Well, peer pressure and money were, of course, the leading theories. Many years later, several people would come forward claiming to have given Steve the idea to jump from the bridge. All we know for sure is that it was an idea born of the Bowery Saloons, its mere suggestion making him a folk hero before he had done a single thing. The wagers soon added up. Brody had lost hundreds of dollars at the racetrack. Now, those same bookies were wagering up to $100 a person that Brody could not survive such a jump. Now, keep in mind, in today's money, $100 is equal to about $3,000. So at a certain point, as these bets and pressure mounted, it would have been difficult to ignore such an insane proposal. In 1933, a very swanky version of the life of Steve Brody was brought to the screen in the film The Bowery, starring Hell's Kitchen resident and screen idol George Raft as Mr. Brody. Here, Brody's motivations are different. There are two Yorkville German beer brewers who want to get their beer down into the Bowery, 
and are here promising Brody a saloon of his own. Brooklyn. Brooklyn Bridge. It would have to be something spectacular, something sensational. That's just what I've been waiting for. You see that bridge? Well, I taught about it lots of times, looking at it out of my window. They call it the eighth wonder of the world. People come from everywhere just to look at it. If a guy jumped off that bridge, the whole world would know about it. You, you mean you jump off from the Brooklyn Bridge? Why not? You said you wanted something spectacular, didn't you? Yes, but you couldn't do that and live, could you? Well, you can't aim a saloon after a dead man, can you? We want to get our lager planted down here, but it isn't worth killing a man to do it. Leave it to me, Mr. Herman. I'll take the chance. By the summer of 1886, it seemed half the world knew Brody's plans. Some reports suggest that his wife approved of this plan, while others indicate she wasn't even aware of it until after it was done. At some point in the spring of 1886, he reportedly practiced his jump by diving off the high bridge. From our last episode, the uptown span that was a part of the Croton Aqueduct water system. On July 22nd, Brody even went down to the newspaper offices and informed the sports editors of his intentions. Well, he certainly couldn't back out now. Now let's get this thing straight. I bet you that you ain't got the nerve to go through with your boast and jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Right. And if I make the jump, I become the sole owner and proprietor of this saloon, right? It's a bet. And if you croak, we'll bury you free. <laughs> Come on, boys, let's get out of this journey. I'm beginning to itch. Don't get personal. At precisely noon on Friday, July 23rd, Brody met with a group of reporters on a barge just a short distance from the bridge. He answered questions and allowed illustrators and reporters to get a good look at his swimsuit before massive anxiety got the best of him. He then headed to a rendezvous point where he boarded a lumber wagon with three other men, including a passenger named Bugs Waterman. Soon the wagon was at the bridge toll booth. Yes, before 1911, all vehicles had to pay a toll to cross the Brooklyn Bridge. So they're here at the toll booth. And despite the fact that everybody in town seemed to know what was about to happen, the officer, for some reason, let the wagon through. About 100 feet past the shoreline, Brody threw off his coat and leapt from the wagon. He mounted the bridge railing and stood upon a large section of roping wire cables as screams came from passing wagons and carriages. A police officer attempted to intervene and, and pleaded with him, but Brody urged him to step back. Again from the biography, quote, Brody looked towards the dock and the barge that he had recently left. The dock and the streets behind it were black with people. On the barge stood the newspaper men, and in the boat not far from it were his friends. The newspaper men were violently motioning him not to jump, but he would not have turned back at that moment for anything in the world. His thought was, if I turn back now, I'll be thought a cowardly cur. He made the sign of the cross on his face and breast and said to himself, God send me luck. God send me grace. God land me in the water safe. And then he stepped off into nothing. Steve Brody, the newsboy and pedestrian star, had jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge. Or maybe he didn't. Now rewind the story that I just told you. The facts of the show come from all different kinds of sources. Primary, secondary, documented interviews, official accounts from Steve Brody and others, and newspapers, both local and national. It is verifiably true, as much as verifiable sources can be true. But what happens to history when the subject of the story, Steve Brody, isn't interested in telling you the truth? 
What if a deception is more profitable? And what if those responsible for reporting the truth, the gatekeepers, the members of the press, what if they just preferred to believe the lie? Did Steve Brody jump from the Brooklyn Bridge on the afternoon of July 23rd, 1886? We'll get to the rest of the story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The following day, the purveyors of what would become known in the following decade as yellow journalism, they made Steve Brody the most famous man in America. From the New York Tribune, July 24th, 1886. In the aristocracy of the Fourth Ward, no name ranks higher than that of Brody. Steve, that's in quotes, Steve has always been the flower of the family. The fourth ward hero is small in stature and has a face typical of his district, with lines prematurely hardened by contact with vice. Virtually every newspaper in the United States ran an article the next day or the days following on the achievement of Steve Brody. From the Times-Picayune in New Orleans, quote, The hero of the hour is Steve Brody. He isn't very much of a hero because he took the chance of depriving his wife and three little children of their natural protector, but he serves today as the top topic of conversation. Brody hit the water feet first and was fished out by his friends awaiting him in a rowboat. On the Manhattan shore of the East River, hundreds roared in celebration. Everybody but a police officer who then escorted him directly to the police station. Along the way, spectators plied Brody with alcohol, so much so that he was extremely drunk by the time that a doctor inspected him. According to the New York Sun, quote, there were no bruises of any account apparent on his body. On his right shoulder was a little red spot, and his right side was red as if it had been scraped when he climbed into the boat. Brody cried, Is there anybody that don't believe I jumped the bridge? Ain't I got sporting blood? He walked proudly over to the tomb's court, occasionally remarking on his greatness. Now, he was, in fact, locked up to the tomb's prison for the evening, but they could find no crime to charge him with. Other inmates cried out his name in celebration, 
late into the night. Now, how exactly does one exploit their newfound fame in the summer of 1886? Well, no surprise. First of all, P.T. Barnum walks into the story. Barnum wanted him, offered him a healthy sum to join one of his traveling circuses. Instead, though, Brody chose to become, quote, the envy of the Coney Island Dime Museums, making hundreds of dollars a week. Essentially, he just stood there answering questions from the curious. He let many young ladies fill his muscles, and he had to repeat over and over again his sensations, the things that he felt as he dropped down from the bridge. Now, by the fall, he was touring across the United States. In Pittsburgh, February 1887, Steve Brody of Brooklyn Bridge Leap fame was arrested here today for attempting to leap from the cupola of a Fifth Avenue museum into a net a distance of 75 feet. Cincinnati, Ohio, May 1887. This afternoon, Steve Brody, who had jumped from the Brooklyn Bridge, jumped from the suspension bridge and was picked up by a yawl, comparatively uninjured. He was really getting into all of this, but he had been out of town for a little bit too long. He was on the road for too long, for just a year later. Okay, so July 1887, this was written about him in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Quote, Mr. Brody has failed in all his undertakings since he tumbled into the East River. He had not the power to live up to his celebrity. We are talking now the fast-paced world of the late 1880s here. Brody needed to remind the world of his superhuman accomplishment, but he also needed a steady income in his hometown. And what better venue to celebrate his own fame than to open a saloon? Steve Brody's saloon in the fall of 1887. Now this very handsome two-story generally at 114 Bowery was really one of New York's first theme bars or theme restaurants, and the theme was Steve Brody. Behind the bar was an elaborate oil painting depicting Brody bravely hurling off the bridge, along with a signed affidavit from the boat captain who fished him out of the water. The floor of the bar was inlaid with silver dollars to give it that luxe feeling, that luxurious feeling, as though money had just been hurled to the floor. His saloon also displayed artifacts of a more pugilistic variety, old gloves, blood-stained shirts. After all, boxing was the Bowery sport of choice, and matches were frequently staged in saloons up and down the avenue. But this was the ultimate sports bar. And the greatest artifact was Steve Brody himself, who frequently sat behind the bar and offered up his thrilling rendition of his plunge off the bridge virtually to anyone who asked. Brody dabbled in boxing himself. It was almost a requirement in upkeeping your Bowery reputation. But he never wandered far from cooking up other outrageous stunts. In September of 1889... Brody claimed to have jumped off the Niagara Falls suspension bridge, which had once spanned the falls, at a height much, much higher than that drop from the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, this spot had special significance to sports enthusiasts, as it was here that the acrobat Charles Blondin that I mentioned early crossed the chasm on a tightrope. That fall in 1889, the New York Times printed Brody's full account of leaping from the bridge. But this supposed feat was a bridge too far for many who had begun questioning Brody's strident versions of his own accomplishments. The Buffalo Evening News threw down the gauntlet, accusing Brody of paying off a particular reporter well-known for fraudulent reports. Quote, the newspapers have always been kind to Steve Brody in publishing his versions of the marvelous leaps he says he has made. His story has been corroborated again and again by his own hired men who were with him in the dark and misty hours of the morning when, as he alleged, he was leaping from great heights. 
He has never in any of his wonderful performances timed his feet so that newspaper reporters could be present. Brody was always surrounded by a group of close friends at each of these jumps who just happened to be the most observant witnesses to his accomplishments. In 1890, a few months after the Niagara Falls fiasco, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle claims that Brody had acknowledged, to who we don't know, but to somebody, acknowledged that he had in fact thrown a dummy over the Niagara a large mannequin in the likeness of himself. But as these things go, like that correction appeared in a two-sentence blurb on page 12 of the newspaper, not on the first or second pages where the original stunt had been. And in that official biography, he claims never to have jumped over the Niagara in the first place, that it was a story spun completely out of control. Quote, the story was what is known to newspaper men as a, quote, fake, pure and simple. Perhaps nobody pursued these leads further in the 1890s because Brody was developing a kind of softer reputation as a philanthropist. For 10 days in the winter of 1893, Brody fed thousands of homeless and hungry people from his saloon. During one particular rainy day, he provided hundreds of free umbrellas to young, poor working women. He paid for the burials of those without families and set up a charity box right outside the saloon, making sure to always drop in a dollar himself. And in this way, Steve Brody, who was in his early 30s, Brody became a sort of father figure to the Bowery community. In the meantime, he needed to further cultivate his reputation. As he got older, he either could no longer perform his athletic feats as skillfully as before, or else he got spooked by the Niagara incident and was afraid of being found out as a fraud. But on the stage, he could develop his reputation without interruption. And he did so in the hit 1894 play called On the Bowery, which made its New York debut at the Haverly 14th Street Theater on 6th Avenue at Ladies Mile. Now, a little theatrical context here. Just a couple years earlier, a musical comedy by the name of A Trip to Chinatown had become a huge hit on the New York stage, and it featured a song that broke out as a nationally popular piece of sheet music. The song was called The Bowery, which waxed nostalgic for the glory days of this now disreputable neighborhood. Oh, the night that I struck New York. I went out for a quiet walk. Folks who are on to the city sing better by far that I took Broadway. But I was out to enjoy the sights. There was the Bowery ablaze with lights. I had one of the devil's own nights. I'll never go there anymore. The Bowery, the Bowery. They say such things and they do strange things on the Bowery, the Bowery, I'll never go there anymore. On the Bowery, a show that was written by Robert Nielsen Stephen, who, by the way, wrote the biography I've been quoting in this episode, On the Bowery enshrines not only the life of the Bowery, but Brody's life narrative. At one point, he's declared in the show the king of the Bowery, and he even emulates his famous dive off of a realistic Brooklyn Bridge set into a mattress. From one review, quote, On the Bowery can hardly be called a great moral drama, but it appears to feel a want. Many connoisseurs of life cannot, for pecuniary reasons, go to the Bowery. The mission of this play is to bring Brody, Brody's saloon, the Bowery which Brody ornaments, and the Brooklyn Bridge from which Brody jumped to them. On the Bowery would go on tour with Steve Brody along for the ride for many years. I should add here that Brody would become a beloved figure across the country, but never as anything more than who he was. Newspapers would frequently quote him without correcting his thick New York accent. 
always reminding readers that he was just a former newsboy from the poor side of town. But the newsies, the newsies of New York and of every city that he visited, well, they loved him. Every year, he offered up an entire performance of On the Bowery just to newsboys. And according to a Buffalo paper, quote, the newsboys considered him greater than a United States senator. You know, back in New York, it was getting rather rough operating a Bowery saloon as the city began cracking down on vice here at the end of the 19th century. He moved his family uptown to East 125th Street, but he wouldn't stick around in New York for much longer, certainly not long enough to try out the new subway, which would have gotten up to his home, which debuted in 1904, because four years earlier, he and his family moved to Buffalo, New York, where he opened a tavern that saw none of the success of the legendary Bowery location. This move was facilitated by another factor, not initially known, that the robust athletic superhero of a man, Steve Brody, had contracted consumption, today known as tuberculosis. By the end of the year 1900, he moved again, this time, to Texas. On November 19th of that year, the New York Times wrote, quote, Disease had emaciated him. His eye glistens, but his cheeks are hollow and his voice is scarcely above a whisper. Steve Brody remarked, I had to leave New York or New York would leave me. When a reporter asked whether his jumping days were over, Steve Brody replied, Jumping? I should say not. I quit that a long time ago. Never jump, young man. It doesn't pay in the long run. Take my advice. If you have to get off of a car, reach up and pull the strap and just wait till it stops. Over two months later, on January 31st, 1901, Steve Brody died in San Antonio, Texas at age 39, leaving behind a fortune worth almost $2.5 million today. He is buried with his wife, Bridget Breen, at Calvary Cemetery in Woodside, Queens. Okay, but did Steve Brody jump off the Brooklyn Bridge? Did a man actually base his entire adult life on a hoax? That quote, Never jump, young man. It doesn't pay in the long run. That was his final quote to the New York Times. Was he associating his illness with a life of dangerous stunts? Or was he suggesting that he, in fact, never jumped for it did indeed pay off in the long run for Steve Brody. To assume that he did risk his life, and that he would continually risk his life over his career, means that he didn't much think with much consideration about his children, who might have experienced the same sort of hard, difficult childhood that he had suffered had their father not been famous. In 1924, a reporter for the Brooklyn Eagle, walked by the location of Steve Brody's old saloon and found an establishment selling shirts, garters, and knitted neckties. A few years later, in 1930, that same newspaper interviewed a former police sergeant, William Muldoon, while he was dining at a Brooklyn supper club. Friendly with Brody in the olden days, Muldoon declared, quote, Brody was fished up out of the river soaking wet, but if he jumped from anything but the deck of a canal boat or a tug, I'll eat my hat instead of this fine meal. But if he was a fraud, oh, what a fraud. Finally, to quote the author Rupert Hughes in his 1904 book, The Real New York, quote, from being a bootblack, he marched via the Dime Museum to glory as a saloon keeper, a lender of umbrellas to poor women on rainy days, an owner of real estate in New York, and finally a star in a play where on every night of the week and twice on Saturdays, he dived off the Brooklyn Bridge into a mattress. Oh, and the real reason that Brody dove off the bridge, according to Warner Brothers, Bugs Bunny drove him insane. <laughs> and that's 
why Steve Brody jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge. Eh, anything more you want to know? Nope. That's enough, son. I'll buy it. Thank you for joining me on this exploration of the life of Steve Brody. Please check out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for a lot of various illustrations of Steve Brody, actually. Things I just found in the newspaper. People just couldn't quite get a sense of his face, apparently. They, they are anything from, like, handsome to ogreish. Uh, but fortunately, there are a couple existing photographs of him that you can also compare them to. Now, this is a beautiful summer so far in New York and a beautiful time for a walking tour. Why don't you try out one of our Bowery Boys walking tours? Book, you can book your tour today at BoweryBoysWalks.com and go on some fascinating explorations with a Bowery Boys New York City history tour guide. We've got walks through Greenwich Village, Central Park, the site of the World's Fair, 1939, and a murder and mayhem tour of NoHo, which takes you to the Bowery. That's BoweryBoysWalks.com. And finally, I want to thank all of those who support us on Patreon. We truly, truly thank each and every one of you who give a small amount each month to help keep us up and running here. I really can't express how much it means to Tom and I that you know you are partially responsible for helping us keep this show going, and so we are incredibly grateful. And we'd like to give a special shout out to the following Patreon supporters, Gail D, Stephen A, Stephen T, and Terry S from Manhattan, Jonathan S from Brooklyn, Shannon B from Cortland Manor, New York, Tom, that's Tom with an H, Tom from New Jersey, Patrick W from West Virginia, and because it's where we ended our show today with Steve Brody, thanks also to Mary S and Sahar A from Texas. So there's a very special presentation in store for next week. Very, I'm very excited to unveil that one to you. So I'll see you in two weeks. I promise it will be a lot less macho than this particular episode. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.